May it please the court, I represent Aaron Broussard. Your honors, the district court in this case erred by allowing the government to introduce spark of life evidence. And this evidence was irrelevant and unfairly prejudicial. For this reason, Mr. Broussard asked that the court vacate his conviction and remand for a new trial. You said erred. Um, I don't think under any situation that's the standard of review. I think if it is preserved, it would be abuse of discretion would be the standard of review. The question I have is, was it, was it preserved? Uh, yes, Your Honor. I think there are... Well, I think you're going to say the motion in limine was presented, but I would at least suggest that you didn't get a definitive ruling on the motion in limine because the court said something to the effect that you can renew the objection under 403 if it, if it becomes too prejudicial, that sort of thing. And I don't think that was actually done. So I, I think the Rule 103 requires a definitive ruling in a motion in limine, and I'm not sure you got one in this case. I disagree, and here's why. It certainly is true that there were no specific 403 objections offered. It certainly is true that the district court uh, allowed defense counsel to make specific 403 objections with respect to spark of life evidence. But it is also true that, especially during the colloquy between the defense attorney and the district court in the first transcript, uh, primarily on pages 16 and 17 of the transcript, that it was made clear that the district court denied the motion to exclude all spark of life evidence, that the defense counsel, had he represented, well, actually, let me back up, that Mr. Broussard had asked the court to exclude all spark of life evidence, that the district court had denied that motion to exclude all spark of life evidence, that defense counsel, had he represented Mr. Broussard, also would have moved to exclude all spark of life evidence, and that he wanted that objection preserved. And the district court confirmed that understanding. So that the district court allowed specific 403 objections to be made does not undercut it. And essentially, it's orthogonal to the point of whether the district court denied the motion to exclude all evidence. It is certainly true, transparently true, that defense counsel was authorized, not that they needed the district court's permission, but authorized to make 403 objections to specific evidence coming in. Okay, which is exactly what it says on page 17 of the transcript. It says, I took the motion in limine to ask me to exclude it all, and the court denied that, but will allow you, Mr. Morrison, to object on 403 grounds if, in your view, it's unduly prejudicial. Right. So if my argument was that... So it, does that leave you with a definitive motion in limine ruling? I mean, is, is with respect saying you can raise 403 arguments? I mean, that's basically the argument to begin with, right? A 403 argument. Sure. Okay, so it's saying you can raise specific ones at trial. It's not definitive. Yeah. Well, but hold on. We have to be a little careful here. Okay. It's denying the argument to exclude it all. The argument I'm making on appeal is the district court shouldn't have let any in. It shouldn't have been a question of now make this specific 403 objection, now make this specific 403 objection, that this evidence carte blanche should have been excluded. Motions in limine are used this way all the time. I mean, the government's brief talks about how, oh, well, there was no specific evidence before the court. Motions in limine all the time are used 
to exclude certain evidentiary paths being traveled before the evidence exists. I don't think the pro se motion in Lemonade addressed or used the word spark of life. I think the government and the district court interpreted that to be the case. That's correct. So setting aside the term, the the nature of the evidence here, photographs, biographical evidence, what case suggests that that is never admissible in federal court? It's clearly subject to 403. But your argument, as I understand it, is none of that should be should have been admissible in this case. And I'm wondering, setting aside the term spark of life, let's look at individually what evidence was admitted. Where are your federal cases that say, just as a general matter, you cannot introduce photographs of of the decedents, um, the victims, or you cannot have any biographical information? It seems to me in federal court, it's much more of a for what purpose? Um, What specific evidence? Uh, Is it cumulative? Is it prejudicial? And, and that's where I struggle a bit uh, because you're importing spark of life from Minnesota state court into federal court, and I, I'm having a hard time with that. So I don't think there's a federal case that suggests that photographs are not admissible. Um, and if it was just photographs, I don't think I would have a leg to stand on here. But it's not just photographs. Frankly, the more problematic stuff was all the testimony about how great and wonderful each person was, that they cared for animals, that they were so humble, that they could... They were the only person that could interact with rescue ponies in Canada. Um, But now I think you just made my point. Now you're not talking about all so-called spark of life evidence. It's only some of it. And the court invited that to be objected to under 403, and it didn't happen. Again, I agree that the court specifically allowed 403 objections to be made. But it is also equally clear that the court denied the motion to exclude it all. Now, whether you think my argument to exclude it all is good or not is a separate question from error preservation. I understand. Okay. I think it's crystal. I mean, just, just look at the transcript on this. So the defense attorney said, I just want to make sure I'm understanding the court's ruling. Mr. Broussard moved to exclude any testimony from victims, family, that essentially is not related to their death, but related to them once uh, I, I being know, once I, live I, human I know, beings. but you just said I wouldn't have a leg to stand on if I was here on the pictures alone, which is part of the so-called spark of life evidence. Okay? So it's not really about all of the evidence. It's about some of it, to which there was an invitation to object on 403 grounds. And so, therefore, I suspect we might be here on plain error. Again, I disagree. I think it is crystal clear that the argument, again, whether you think the argument is good or not, is a separate question from whether the argument is preserved. I agree, 100%. So I think it's crystal clear from the colloquy that everyone understood the pro se motion is being asked to exclude it all, that the court confirmed that understanding and said yes, that counsel said, um, if I had been his attorney, I would have asked to exclude it all, and I just wanted that to be preserved, that being the argument to exclude it all. And then the district court also said, quote, I took Mr. Broussard's motion in limine to ask me to exclude it all. And the court denied that. So I mean, respectfully, whether you think the argument is good or not is a separate question from error preservation. If you have the court saying, I thought he asked me to exclude it all, and I said no, and I denied that, then the argument that it should have all been excluded is preserved. Whether that is a good argument or not is a separate question from the error preservation. But I think that this transcript clearly uh, establishes that that argument was preserved, and that's the argument that I am proceeding on under appeal. 
So for those reasons, I think it's abundantly clear that that argument was preserved. Going to the merits, unless your honors have further questions. Uh, the, one of the Minnesota Supreme Court's uh, cases, Graham, recognizing spark of life evidence, even recognizes that this evidence is not, strictly speaking, relevant. Right? There, there is, there is uh, I would say that it's patently obvious that you know, evidence that one of the victims, um, SF, was so brilliant and humble that he was the only one that could work with rescue ponies in Canada, that he obtained prizes in math and science, that he got a nearly perfect SAT score when he was in seventh grade, that he was identified by the Duke Talent Identification Program as one of the top talents in math and science in the entire country, that a professor at Georgia Tech said never in his 45 years had he had a student like SF, because SF took his graduate seminar without even enrolling the course because he loved learning so much. None of that is relevant to the issues in this case. That's just one example. What about the testimony concerning AL? We learned that AL was a Star Wars nerd and a Harry Potter fan, that that's how she initially formed her bond with her best friend, um, that she met her best friend when her best friend was having a bad day in the nursing station by dancing over awkwardly in a way to get her to laugh. And that was one of her unique talents, was being willing to be embarrassed and zany and a little kooky in order to lighten the mood and bring some levity into what were otherwise very serious situations. Um, that she dedicated her life to being a nurse and caring for others, and she took that obligation really seriously. That when she was treating a patient who was a cancer patient and had gone through several rounds of chemo, was feeling very weak and down, that she put metal push pins into the bottom of the soles of her shoe and tap danced into his room in a funny, awkward way to get him to smile, to get him forget for a moment the difficulties that he was going in through life right now. Are you talking in terms of prejudice here? Because I kind of have the same question that Judge Grunder is, but I'm going to ask it a completely different way, which is, what was the district court supposed to do? Sua sponte say, okay, we're going to allow the photographs, but we are not going to allow you to talk about Harry Potter and some of the other things. Um, is, that, is that what you expected the district court to do? I expected the district court to prevent inquiry into, and actually I misspoke. This is not purely just a Rule 403 analysis. This is also a relevancy analysis. All of this stuff that I went through, and there's more of this, I could go through victim after victim, there was testimony that was utterly irrelevant to the issue, whether they were killed by fentanyl, whether the fentanyl was distributed by Mr. Broussard. So it's not just a rule 403 analysis, it's also a relevancy analysis. I expected the district court to exclude evidence that is likely unfairly prejudicial, uh, more than its probative value. When should the district court have done that? The district court should have done that at the outset. These areas should not have been gone into. Uh, I think if it was just the pictures, okay, there, there isn't an Eighth Circuit that's, case that stands for the proposition you can't have pictures. And I think the government makes a fair point that often in pictures people are smiling. But all this other stuff has nothing to do with anything. The government, I, in, in my estimation, very weakly tries to argue, no, 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 look, the reason why this evidence about how they're great humans and they're great with ponies and they're so brilliant and they care about people and they'll dance in funny ways to make cancer patients feel good, the reason that's all important is because it establishes that they're vibrant. 
and they had things to live for. So at that point, the, the district court should have done two things in your view, and I, I just want to pin down the argument. One is the district court should have warned the parties ahead of time, warned the government ahead of time, I'm going to allow photographs, this and that, but I'm not going to allow this other stuff about ponies and, and Harry Potter. And then if they exceeded their, if, if, if the government did too much, let's say, um, and ventured into some of those areas, the district court would just say, okay, you've, you've crossed the line here. We, you, know, you shouldn't be admit, admitting that particular evidence. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I guess I would also say that to the extent that the government tries to say, well, this evidence is important because it establishes that they're vibrant and it goes to causation because people who are vibrant are less likely to abuse opioids and therefore were less likely to have acquired it from some other source, which tends to show that they in fact died from fentanyl distributed by Mr. Broussard. That I think is a very, very thin read. But this could have been made so much simpler. Ask the witness, were they a vibrant person? Yes. Were they healthy? Yes. The government says, oh no, we just asked these open-ended questions. Precisely. The government asked these open-ended questions so these witnesses could go on and on about who they were as people and how they were the world's greatest dad. And when they had the kid, it was like a whole new area in their heart opened up. And it was another area for them to excel and be awesome in. This is incredibly damning evidence. And this idea that defense counsel could object, can you imagine how that would look? You have a witness who's crying and talking about how amazing this person is who died, and then defense counsel stands up and says, oh, I object. They shouldn't be allowed to talk about this. I mean, talk about painting yourself into a corner. And that's precisely why the district court should have said, you can't go into any of this. You want to establish that they're healthy? Fine. Ask them that they're healthy. You want to establish that they're vibrant? Fine. Ask them that they're vibrant. The government deliberately asked open-ended questions to elicit all of this evidence. This evidence has nothing to do with whether the fentanyl distributed by Mr. Broussard caused these deaths. But you concede that some of it is admissible. Are they healthy? Are they vibrant? Pictures. So when the court ruled, I'm not going to exclude all of it, you agree with that, basically. And we're now on a situation by situation. And I'll answer your question. You ask for a sidebar, Your Honor. This is getting far afield in a sidebar, right? That's what it happens all the time. The government had mountains of evidence against Mr. Broussard. The only reason they went into this is precisely because it was so irrelevant and so unfairly prejudicial. So why and isn't that harmless error? You just conceded there were mountains of, of other evidence against him. Why isn't it harmless in this case? Good question, Your Honor. The reason it's not harmless in this case is the harmless error analysis doesn't look at the question from, is there sufficient evidence to convict? absent the erroneous evidence, the evidence that should have been excluded. The question is, on the case that was tried to the jury, can you say that the evidence, the problematic evidence that should have been excluded, I see that my time's up, may I? Finish your thought, please. Thank you. Uh, the question is not whether they would have convicted absent the evidence. The question is whether on the case as it was tried, the evidence that should have been excluded was admitted. Did that have more the government and I have a slight fight about the precise language of the standard. I say more than a slight influence on the verdict. The government says more than a substantial influence on the verdict. This evidence is, I mean, <laughs> to say that this is limited, I think, uh, is a really myopic view of how damning this evidence was and how it came in from witness after witness on victim after victim. I think we understand your point. I'll give you a minute in rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. 
Good morning, Mr. Nelson. Good morning, Your Honor. May it please the court, I'd like to start by addressing the standard of review here. Uh, the defendant's argument, both in his reply brief and today before the court, is essentially that because he made a motion in limine, a pretrial motion in limine, seeking to exclude all this evidence, that the claim of error is preserved with respect to all the evidence. But as Your Honor pointed out, that's not the standard. There is a federal rule of evidence specifically covering this type of situation, 103B. And it says a pretrial motion in limine can preserve an issue for appeal, but only if the district court's ruling on that issue is, quote, definitive. And if the district court reserves its ruling or indicates that it's preliminary or provisional in some respect, a contemporaneous objection is still required. And there are four reasons here why the district court's ruling was not. Before, uh, before you get there, before the four reasons, I just want to ask, is that a categorical rule? Let me give you an example. Suppose you had character evidence and the district court said no character evidence. Or it said you could you can bring in character evidence, but on four hundred three, you know you can make individual objections as to individual pieces of character evidence. Would you then have to come back and say, okay, objection again, character evidence, and it's unduly prejudicial when the district court's already made the character evidence ruling? I think, Your Honor, to whatever extent the district court's ruling leaves open an issue, that's where an, a further objection is required. So. Turning to the four reasons the district yep. court's ruling was not definitive here. One, Before you get there, let me, of course. that raised an interesting thought I had. The initial motion in limine, was it based on, on relevance or 403 or both or what? The, the initial motion in limine was phrased specifically, it, it was four sentences written by a, a pro se defendant at the time. It asked the government to uh, bar the government from presenting witnesses that were ultimately without probative value uh, because it would be irrelevant and unfairly prejudicial and a waste of time. That was, okay, so that was how it was articulated. That seems to cover relevance. And then the court said, but I'll allow you to do 403. So is there an argument that the relevance portion is preserved? Potentially, there's an argument that a 401 objection solely is preserved, but a 403 objection is not. So I, I still don't think either was preserved, and I think that gets to my four reasons why the district court's ruling was not, was not uh, definitive here. One, the first line of the district court's ruling on this motion in limine was, the defendant has not cited for me any specific evidence. So the court came in and said at the outset, I don't know what this evidence is going to be. The defendant hasn't told me specifically what evidence he's challenging. The second reason is that the district court found only that the government's proffered evidence was, quote, likely admissible. Again, it didn't know specifically what these witnesses were going to say, but it said, what the government has told me about what they're going to say is, quote, likely admissible. Did the, did the district court at that point cite Minnesota law on spark of life? It, it did, Your Honor. It, so the district court may have not known exactly what the defendant was talking about, but the government and the district court kind of got together and said, this is what we think it is, and here's what the government is going to introduce. That's correct, essentially, Your Honor. That's, that's correct. The government said it would introduce photographs, and testimony from a family member that the victim was healthy and vibrant prior to their death uh, from the defendant's drugs. So, and the district court, as I said, under the second reason, only found that this was likely admissible. But again, it didn't know anything about the evidence beyond that. 
The third reason is that the district court denied the defendant's motion in limine without prejudice. So it made very clear, I'm denying this categorical motion to exclude all the evidence, but I'm leaving it open for you to re-raise as it comes in at trial. And that brings me to the fourth reason, and I think the most important here. The district court specifically invited further objections. It specifically invited the defendant to object if he deemed this evidence was irrelevant or too prejudicial as presented. And there is a case that I think would be helpful to the court here, and that is United States v. Young, 753 Federal 3rd, 757. It deals with what is a definitive ruling. And in that court, in that case, this court said, and this is a quote, that a district court's invitation to re-raise evidentiary challenges renders its ruling non-definitive. And that's precisely what happened here. The district court invited the defendant to re-raise these challenges as they came in at trial when the specific evidence could be viewed in context. And in doing so, it rendered this ruling non-definitive. And because the ruling was non-definitive, the defendant's failure to object forfeits this issue, and the court should review for plain error only. There is a second aspect of Rule 103 that I think is also important, which is in the commentary it says that if a pretrial ruling is definitive, on appeal, this court should only look to the facts that the district court had before it in evaluating that ruling. So the court's review would still be circumscribed. The quote from the commentary is that a definitive advanced ruling is reviewed in light of the facts and circumstances before the trial court at the time of the ruling. And that if relevant facts and circumstances change materially after the advanced ruling has been made, those facts and circumstances, and again, this is a quote, cannot be relied upon on appeal unless they have been brought to the attention of the trial court by way of a renewed and timely objection. And so all these specific facts that the defendant is emphasizing before your honors, things about rescue ponies and dancing nurses and whatnot, none of that was before the district court when it's made its ruling, and none of that is relevant to the assessment of whether the district court erred in making this pretrial ruling on appeal. The district court's ruling should only be and can only be judged by the facts that were in front of it at the time. And what was in front of the district court at the time was the government's statement that it was going to introduce evidence that would show these victims were healthy and vibrant prior to their death. Health, as I've indicated in my brief, is a clear watchword for causation under these circumstances of this case. If the victims were healthy, it's unlikely that they would have fallen dead in the prime of their lives from some cause other than the fact that the defendant mailed them fentanyl in the mail masquerading as another drug. Then why talk about why, I mean, the government seemed a little overzealous when it came to the evidence, right? We talk about now Harry Potter and ponies. That has nothing to do with health. That just has to, that establishes that these were really good people that died, which could be prejudicial. A couple of responses. One, I disagree that the government was overzealous. The government asked very limited questions, open-ended questions. Open-ended questions. Open-ended questions, but that were neutrally phrased, Your Honors. The government just asked a little bit to tell us a little bit about your family members. An AUSA can easily redirect testimony that's going afar, right? I mean, and that didn't happen here. 
Once the ponies and the Harry Potter come up, I mean, an AUSA can easily intervene at that point. So, all right, thank you. Let me move on. I, I think that's I think that's correct to an extent, Your Honor. Uh, although, again, health and vibrancy were the vibrancy was the other issue that the government proffered that this evidence was uh, relevant for. And here, I think it is important to note the unusual facts of this case. None of these victims believed that they were ingesting fentanyl. None of these people were deliberately out seeking opioids or fentanyl. They were out seeking Adderall or an Adderall substitute, a drug that helps you focus, that helps you concentrate. How is that relevant? Because, Your Honor, what it would show is that none of these people were likely to be the types of people who were out seeking fentanyl from some other source. The defendant, in his closing argument, even suggested that perhaps these people got fentanyl from someone else. Uh, but the, the facts about their lives show that these were not likely people who were out seeking fentanyl from some other source deliberately. And I've, I've cited a, a, a Mayo Clinic talks about the risk factors for fentanyl and opioid abuse. Can, I, can I just follow up on Judge Kobus's earlier question? This also presumes that the government um, had no idea what the witnesses were going to say. Um, and usually, you know, there's that old adage, don't ask questions unless you know what the answer is. And so, to the, you know, there's nothing in the record about it, but one presumes that the guidelines were set by the, by the, you know, the U.S. attorney who was prosecuting the case and that, you know, maybe it was a little overzealous to allow him to go. Of course, this is not part of the record. I just, I'm just sort of pointing that out. You could have redirected. You could have told the witnesses ahead of time what the what ground rules were. Your Honor's correct. It's it's not part of the record, and I wasn't part of the trial team, so I can't sure. I can't provide the court with any illumination as to whether and what extent the prosecuting attorneys were forewarned about what the victims were going to say. I, I do think that though, though a good AUSA prepares his witnesses. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's what really what I was getting. I, I tried to say it diplomatically. Yeah, yes. I think that's that's obviously. Correct, Your Honor, although I will note that these were people who were testifying to a subject matter that was deeply emotional to a traumatic event. And so the idea that, you know, perhaps it was crystal clear exactly how this testimony was going to come in beforehand, I don't think is uh, something that, in my experience, is, is likely to be true when you're dealing with emotional, traumatized uh, people. Uh, it, it can't always be controlled. Emotional testimony can't always be controlled in that same way. Are the, uh, witnesses sequestered here? I mean, the, the suspicious, further suspicious part is each one of these tended to go along the same. Each one of the witnesses tend to go, go into these areas. I, I believe the witnesses were sequestered, although I do think that when you look at the individual testimony, each, uh, each victim or victim's family member really varied in terms of the scope of things they got into. Some, I, I see with respect to victim TR, for example, really all that was testified about was that he was the father of three girls. Um, with respect to others, there was more about their personality, things of that nature. But again, looking at the evidence as a whole, the fact that these people were employed, the fact that they had strong family relationships, the fact that they had friends, hobbies, hope for the future, they were engaged with their community, all those are things that would tend to negate a suggestion that they were going out, trolling the streets for fentanyl and trying to obtain fentanyl from other sources and thus might have died from some other fentanyl other than what the defendant distributed. 
The last point I'd like to address is with respect to harmlessness. Even if the district court erred here, which for all the reasons I've discussed, I don't believe it did. And I should mention, of course, because we're on a plain error standard of review, this court's been very clear when there is no binding Eighth Circuit authority, when there is no binding Supreme Court authority, the district court's error, if any, cannot be said to be plain, clear, or obvious. So that's the situation we have here. We don't have any case saying that this type of evidence is categorically inadmissible. So the district court, to the extent the district court disagrees, any error was not plain. But if this court finds a clear or obvious error, there's still the hurdle of harmlessness. And under a plain error standard of review, the defendant bears the burden of proving that the verdict was likely impacted or would have been different absent the admission of this evidence. Do you think there was error? I mean, I know you say there's no plain error, but do you think there was error? I mean, spark of life evidence is very controversial. You know, my former court obviously has approved of it, but even amongst members of the court, it was something, you know, you would talk about. So it's a deeply controversial subject about how far it can go. I don't believe there was error, Your Honor. I believe that this evidence was relevant for the reasons I've discussed. It was limited. We're talking about an eight-volume, 1,500-page transcript. The amount of testimony devoted to spark of life type issues or the victim biographical information. That goes more to the weight, not the question of whether there was error, right? I mean, the question whether there was error doesn't really matter how extensive it was. Or are you suggesting that it was limited and it wasn't beyond the pale? I think it's relevant to a 403 analysis, Your Honor. If this evidence were belabored, if it was emphasized, if it was capitalized, the emotional value was really... Didn't it come up in closing, some of these stories about the individual victims or not? No, Your Honor. What came up in closing was the repeated phrase that these 11 deceased victims were happy, vibrant, and loved. That phrase was repeated two or three times. But the stories themselves, the particular anecdotes that the defendant is citing here today, that wasn't discussed in closing. It wasn't exploited or emphasized by the prosecution. The prosecution didn't engage in arguments that were calling for vindication or revenge against the person who perpetrated these things. It was a limited evidence that was limited to those issues and not particularly emphasized by the prosecution. And as the defendant himself has told you today, there was mountains of evidence against Mr. Broussard. The only thing he musters in his brief is the suggestion that perhaps there was a causation issue because sometimes the medical examiners disagreed with the government's expert witness. That happened in one case for whom Spark of Life was admitted, J.B. But as I've indicated in my brief, there was ample evidence of causation with respect to J.B. Because there was overwhelming evidence, this court should affirm regardless of whether any error occurred. I see my time has expired. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Nelson. Mr. Myers, your minute of rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. A few brief points. One, with respect to the Yun case, that wasn't cited in the government's brief. I would like the opportunity to address that in post-argument briefing to the extent the court considers that relevant. Also, the government's arguing about definitive rulings and things like that. That wasn't in the brief either. I think there's some problems with it, introducing it now to oral argument. But setting all that aside, the question about whether the government knew what these witnesses were going to go into, 
They absolutely knew, and the record actually impliedly supports that assertion. On page 568 of the transcript, when they're talking about the victim, Scott, there's the question, did Scott become a more important figure in the family after that, that being the divorce? They knew exactly what that witness was going to go into. They knew what these witnesses were going to go into. They didn't stop any of it. These witnesses went on and on and on. And uh, it was exploited by the government. They let it go on and on. And the point about only the facts and circumstances in front of the court, the government represented to the court that this would be limited in nature to the health and vibrancy. They could have accomplished that very easily by asking, were they healthy, were they vibrant? They specifically asked open-ended questions to elicit all of this damning evidence. That was their choice. They did it because a trial is a theater and it made the defendant look awful. You're not arguing misconduct here, are you? I'm not arguing misconduct, but I'm arguing they did things for a reason and impliedly that it, they weren't always open-ended questions. Did Scott become a more important figure in the family after that? I mean, I guess that's quasi-open-ended, but it wasn't tell me about Scott. This suggests that they knew exactly the kind of things that were going to come in from these witnesses, as is obvious from any good attorney preparing their case. I mean, they worked this case to the bone. The, the list of exhibits is... I think like 30 pages or something from the government. The idea that they didn't know what was coming in is a farce that I think everyone knows, even if it's not directly apparent from the transcript. And I think it's impliedly apparent in some instances. This isn't the only one. This is the only one that I could find in the couple minutes that I was looking. Unless the court has other questions. Thank you, Mr. Myers.